Good morning. I want to welcome you to worship at Rivermont today and invite you to turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 3. We left off last week for the story in chapter 2. The Lord had given wisdom to Daniel to know and interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It had been a dream about a large statue with a head of gold and, and a torso of silver and, and uh, legs of bronze and, and the deeper legs of iron and clay mixed together. Nebuchadnezzar was told that he was the head of gold. And yet one day, the rock, the kingdom of the rock, whom we know as the Lord Jesus, would bring his kingdom and destroy all the empires of the world. King Jesus shall stand and reign forever. As you might imagine, Nebuchadnezzar was not very happy at that pronouncement. His kingdom was represented by a head of gold that might pass away. And so at the beginning of chapter 3, the king had an idea. What if I have an entire statue made of gold to stand 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide? That's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and have the whole thing overlaid with gold. Can you understand why you might want that? He wanted to communicate that his kingdom of gold shall not pass away but it will stand in permanence. And so he had this nine-story tall gold statue that represented himself and all the gods of Babylon erected and demanded that everyone worship it. Not just those native to Babylon, but in verse 4 of our chapter, all the peoples and languages and nations, including the Jewish exiles, must bow down and worship or else they would be thrown in the fiery furnace which some commentators believe to be the very furnace that was used to produce the brick structure and melt the gold to overlay this idol. Worship or burn, he said. Religion and the state mesh together as an object of worship. Let's pick up our story in Daniel 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. He was furious and ordered the furnace heated even more and carried out his threat. Down to verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. 
Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see what you have for us today, that we might live according to your power and for your glory. Strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' strong name we ask it. Amen. It seems that authority and power don't always go together, do they? And just because you have authority may not mean that you have the power to back it up. For example, let's say you're cruising down Highway 29 a tad bit over the speed limit. Let's say you're going 85 and a 60. (laughs) And the nice Nelson County law enforcement officers that have pulled so many of us over across the years, including myself, they catch you. And if that officer comes up beside your car and flashes his badge and says, may I see your license, and your reply is, yep, in a disrespectful tone, you're probably started down the wrong road, aren't you? And if he asks you again and you give him more lip, then he's going to get madder. And finally, when the officer says, step out of the car, what happens when you respond, uh uh I like it right where I am. What's going to happen then? Out come the cuffs. Maybe even a hand on the holster as he not so gently escorts you to the back seat of his car, right? When the officer shows you his badge, that's a demonstration of his authority. But when the cuffs and the revolver come out, he's proving he has the power to back up that authority, right? Lots of people claim authority in this world, but who truly holds power? Who truly has the power to back up their authority? Nebuchadnezzar flashed his badge by erecting this enormous statue to himself. He claimed authority to unite the entire known world at the time under the worship of his gods and under his authority in Babylon. But did he have any power to back up that assertion of authority? No. As chapter 3's message makes it plain, it's not the idols of this world, not the idols of our hearts, not even the rulers of the empires of this world that truly hold power. It is God who holds power. It is God who has the power to back up the authority of His name. The question of chapter 3 of Daniel is how do we live in light of God's power and God's authority? The first that we see we're called to do in light of God's power is to serve His priorities. Not our priorities, but His priorities. And it is precisely because our God is powerful that we are called to and we are equipped to serve, even in our nation, in our city, in our world. Back in chapter 2, verses 48 and following, it tells us that Daniel and his friends took roles in governing Babylon even while they waited for the kingdom of the rock, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus to come. God provided the opportunity for them to bless the city in the name of the Lord and in the power of the Lord. They put into practice what the Lord commanded the exiles to do in Jeremiah 29, verses 5 to 7. And that is to seek the welfare of the city. That Hebrew word for welfare is is peace, it's flourishing or wholeness. We are called, they were called to seek the flourishing and the peace and the wholeness even of the city of Babylon. They were to serve and pour themselves out in their work and in their relationships. They were called to bring a taste of God's peace, of God's kingdom values, of God's blessing even into that pagan civilization. They were called to be salt and light. Jesus might say. 
They were called to give of themselves such that Babylon, even a pluralistic city like Babylon, was a better place to live for everyone. And yet they could do that. They could serve and sacrifice precisely because they realized that it was the Lord who was in power. It was the Lord who was the authority, not some emperor in authority. Friends, I hope you realize that same call comes to you and to me in our changing and pluralistic nation and world. As God's people, we are called to ultimately work for the kingdom of Jesus and to long for His rule and His peace to be present on earth as it is in heaven as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. But that doesn't mean that we all join ministry staffs. But rather, we are called to bring those values and the peace and the fullness of blessing of the Lord into every sphere of our lives. Our workplace, our family, our businesses, our neighborhoods. Working for Jesus' kingdom doesn't make us liable to the charge that some have offered. That we are so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. That's not taking this call to be faithful in our society seriously. But rather we are called to give of ourselves to bless our city and bless our nation. Whatever skills and talents that God has given you, look for ways to put them to use in blessing our city. Even though our city is not a Christian city, even though this your endeavor might not be a Christian endeavor, whatever ideas you have to improve our city, look for a place to communicate and implement those for health and wholeness for all of the people of our city. In such a way, we are called to be salt and light in our world. But you know that there are times, however, when our world will pressure us to make that primary identity secondary. The world will pressure us to make that primary identity of belonging to the kingdom of God, being a citizen of heaven as our primary identity. The world may pressure us into making that something secondary behind nation, behind our state. Nebuchadnezzar did his best to assert his authority and a supposed power. In the first seven verses of our chapter, he's referenced as king six different times. And he demanded conformity from everyone, including the list of all the civil servants. It's given twice. And all people, he said, must worship his gods and his image or else be thrown into the fiery furnace. He was pressuring everyone that their identity before their God is secondary to their identity as a citizen of his kingdom. It seems Nebuchadnezzar's command would fit in very well in our world, but maybe not as you might suspect. If you read it carefully, what Nebuchadnezzar said, you'll notice he never forbids these three Jews from worshiping their God. Did you see that? But instead, verse 14, he has made a statue for all the gods of Babylon to be worshipped. Nebuchadnezzar's vision is for a pluralistic Babylon where all the gods are equally worshipped and the only crime is saying that my God is the only true and living God. He's saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you don't have to stop worshipping your God in private, but in public, you have to honor mine. All the gods of Babylon, in verse 14. In private, do whatever you want, but in public, you must honor the gods of society. Your commitment to your God must be a secondary concern. It must come behind your commitment to the empire. 
to the political power and to this particular ruler, me, Nebuchadnezzar, I come first, your God can come second. Support your nation or otherwise you forfeit your life. Do we not at times face a similar pressure? Nation first, God second. Perhaps in our world, it's in our country, it's not to the point of losing our lives, but do we not face being ostracized and marginalized for suggesting that we believe a child in the womb is a person whose life is worthy of protection? Are we not marginalized by saying that a gender has been assigned by God and society flourishes best when one man and one woman commit themselves to live in faithfulness in marriage? Or are we not ostracized when we say that we're willing to deny ourselves and deny what makes us feel good? And the charge is, you are going to do that simply because some outdated book tells you what a God thinks, that a God knows better than you? Sometimes we are set aside for speaking prophetic truth to our nation and to our world. But also, we may face pressures on the other side. Pressure to make allegiance to a party or to a candidate primary as if allegiance to Jesus is the same thing as allegiance to that party or that candidate. It's not. Loyalty to Jesus is our primary identity. Loyalty to the kingdom of God is our primary concern. And whatever party, whatever, whatever candidate, whatever allegiance you have to a particular government person, that comes after your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. We face pressure from both sides in our world, don't we? We face pressures to stand for His priorities and we will only stand when we remember that God not only has authority to call us to serve Him, but He also has the power. It seems that in this chapter in Daniel, it was written to poke holes in the seeming power of Nebuchadnezzar so we could see the one who truly has power. For instance, take a step back and just... Think about the lunacy of what is said in this chapter. In verses 1 and 15, all the people were called to worship a statue that the king made. Isn't that crazy? You worship a statue the king made. And then nine times it says that the king set it up. In verse 1, verse 2, twice in verse 3, 5, 7, 12, 14, 18, it's repeated again and again, the king set it up, the king set it up, the king set it up. And now you worship it. Treat it as divine, this statue that I set up. Whenever my band plays, see all my divine power in my 90-foot-tall metal thing. It's ridiculous. Divine power? Of course not. Yesterday, this thing was a pile of bricks and a hunk of metal. Are we going to worship it and treat it as if it has divine authority? Of course not. He has no real power. And I think this is written for us to to teach us that sometimes we must recognize the emptiness of the pressures in this world to conform. And if we recognize the emptiness of those pressures to conform, it can bleed away the intimidation in our lives to conform. There is no need to be terrorized by a paper tiger because God is the one who has power. And therefore, we stand for His priorities. We seek to bless the city and serve the nation and pursue the flourishing of our people. And sometimes that calls us to tell the truth about our world. It calls upon us to tell the truth to our leaders of the injustice and the sin and the broken places that our authorities may not want to hear about. 
And you will only find strength to stand up and tell the truth and speak out for His priorities when you do so under the conviction that it is the Lord who holds the power. It is the Lord who holds the authority. Not our elected leaders, ultimately. We can tell them the truth because our allegiance is to the kingdom of God first. Second way we see in this passage that we are called to live recognizing God's power is by hanging on to His promises. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as the story goes, did not worship the king's statue. And what happened? The king raged, didn't he? Verse 15. Who is the God who can deliver you from my hands? How did they answer him? Verse 17. Our God is able to deliver us. Now that's the right place to start. It's always the right place to start if you feel threatened and you wonder, who can deliver us? Our God is able. But they kept going, didn't they? Verse 17. Our God is able to deliver us in verse 18. But if not. But if not, we still will not bow down or serve your gods. What are these boys staking their lives upon? They're staking their lives upon the promise that if God delivers them out of the fire, then surely they're in His hands. But even if they die, they are still in God's hands. Sometimes God would choose to deliver them from death in the fire, or God would choose to deliver them through death. But in either case, God is worthy of praise and worship. Their faith tells them and they stake their lives upon the promise that their survival is not the only tool available to God. It's not the only option available to Him. Their safety and their comfort is not the only means by which God could bless and grow His kingdom in Babylon. God is able, absolutely, but it just may be that God's own divine purposes are best served through their suffering. It's a hard lesson. It's a hard message for us to hear. My God can deliver me from this circumstance, but even if He chooses not to, He is no less God and He is no less good to me. There have been times in my life And in the not-too-distant past, where my heart has traveled down the road of bitterness with the Lord. And if you could have heard the internal dialogue in my soul, it would have sounded something like this. I've lived for you, God. I've given up things for you. I've stood for your priorities. I've been ridiculed for it. I've given up money. I've given up jobs. I've given up opportunities all to serve you and do the right thing. I've worked hard for you, God. And now you turn on me and let this hard thing happen to me. When I've given so much to you and so much for you, why, God, didn't you come through for me when I really needed you? You ever held that dialogue in your heart? You ever felt that bitterness in your soul? When we feel like that, it's like our hearts stop at verse 17. My God is able... And we forget that it keeps going to verse 18. But if not. When we feel like that, it's most often because at the bottom, we trust God for what He can do to further our own agendas rather than trusting God to be God. It's like we sashay up to the Lord and say, look, 
I realize, God, that you've got this. I realize that you have a plan. I realize that, that you're in power and all, but, but look, I've got a great idea. I've got a plan, God. And we trust Him to further our agenda rather than trusting God to be God. Their confession was not, we're going to trust because God's going to deliver us. But instead, we're trusting God even if He decides not to deliver us. Sometimes it gets worse, doesn't it? Think about these three boys. They stood up for God and it got worse for them. What happened? Nebuchadnezzar got angry and he heated the furnace up. How many times? Seven times hotter. And then he had them bound. He had them tied up and so they couldn't get loose. And then he threw them in. Sometimes standing for righteousness makes things worse. There may be times when telling the truth gets you fired. When loving someone enough to confront them costs you the friendship. There may be times when refusing to go along to get along gets you thrown out. What does faith mean when you're tossed into the furnace and you don't get the healing and the restoration and the blessing you desire? What does your faith mean then? For these boys and for us, we have to realize that the miracle is not simply that God can keep us out of the furnace. God can keep us out of this hard circumstances, but rather the miracle is that God finds us in it. Nebuchadnezzar had them bound and tossed in, but when he looked in verse 25, they were free, unbound and walking around. They were not alone. There were four, not three. And the fourth looked to him like a son of the gods. Now we don't know whether this is some angel or whether it's Jesus Himself walking with them, but it is proven to be an Emmanuel moment. It was God with us in the fire moment. The miracle was not that God delivered the boys and kept them out of danger, but instead God dove headlong into it with them. He went into the danger alongside them. And friends, whatever the furnace is in your life that you face, that is your hope too, that Jesus shows up in the furnace. Jesus shows up in the midst of your difficulty. He didn't abandon them in their distress, but He was Emmanuel. He was God with us. And so He is also God for us. God may not deliver you out of your distress. He may not stop us from going down into the hard places. He may not even stop the suffering that comes to us. But He will go into it with us. And that's the promise. That He will never abandon His people in their distress. And that includes you. How do you know? How can you trust that He will dwell with us, that we're not consumed by our trials and our pains like we said in in Isaiah 43 in our call to worship? How can we be sure? We can be sure not only because Jesus entered that furnace, but because He enters ours by going to the cross. On the cross, the Lord Jesus took our rightful judgment. He took our guilt. He took our shame so that we would never be abandoned. Jesus shows up in our guilty place that by His blood we might be free. The Father's face was turned away from His only Son so that His face could be turned toward you and me in mercy and in blessing. Jesus was abandoned on the cross. He went and faced His own trial of shame all alone. 
so that you and I would never enter into our trials alone. God is with us and God is for us. Nebuchadnezzar claimed that he had authority over life and death in his kingdom. And it may feel to you like your trials and your struggles and the hard places of your life have power and authority over you. The message of Daniel 3 is that only Jesus holds the true power. And He freely grants life to sinners who struggle, sinners who fail, and sinners who repent. How do you know that Jesus will go with you into your own furnace? You know because He's already come for you on the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would comfort us as many of us face hard things in our lives. We face the furnace of broken relationships, the furnace of persecution, the furnace of being marginalized, the furnace of feeling like we're outcasts. Many of us face the furnace of disease or illness. And we wonder, Lord, where are you? Help us to lay hold of the truth that you go into our troubled places with us. You dwell within us and you will open our eyes to see that you are our God of comfort, our God of blessing, even in the midst of the hard place. Help us to remember that you've come for us upon the cross, that we might live with you forever. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.